Hello again and welcome. I'm your host Natalia and we're in conversation with Pastor Jeremy today. Our last sermon was continuing in the book of Mark and we spoke about the passage on the transfiguration. Hi Pastor Jeremy, how do you think this is going? Hi Natalia, it's good to be back with you and welcome everybody else to this podcast. I'm so glad that we are able to go back to a sermon and chew on it. Oftentimes, sermons are lost to Monday morning and to our weekly schedules, and I'm glad that we have this opportunity midweek to stop and reflect. Oftentimes, the Spirit of God has worked Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and He's taken something from God's Word, from the sermon, from the meditation, from the afterthoughts, or some post-sermon conversations that you had perhaps outside church and begun to take that deep into our hearts, and we've been thinking about it. And it's always great to flesh that out completely and process that to see what is God wanting me to change about that. So I'm glad we have this conversation going. And I, again, encourage you to follow, to share. I encourage you to send in questions that would be authentically areas that you are struggling with, that you have thoughts or or want clarification with regard to the sermon itself. So I look forward to hearing from you. So the transfiguration is significant on so many levels. What are some perspectives that makes this event pivotal in Christ's ministry? The transfiguration is a pivotal event in the ministry of Christ in his three years. You do not see Christ leak, show, reveal his glorious self anywhere in his life until the resurrection. But just to these three disciples, in a very private viewing, and some would even call it a vision. But in a very private viewing, Jesus transforms himself and allows for the glory that is truly his, his original state, his actual being as a son of God. He allows for that to shine through the flesh, to shine through his incarnation and actually be visible to the human eye of three of his disciples who would never be the same again. It would radically alter their way of thinking, their faith, and they would become eyewitnesses of his glory. Eyewitnesses of his glory. No other disciples could say that, and these guys were able to say that. And of course, Paul, who met Jesus on the Damascus Road, was able to say that. We are eyewitnesses of his glory. So this is significant on so many levels. First and foremost, to the three, James, Peter, and John, John wrote the gospel, Peter wrote his epistles, James wrote his letter. And in all of those three authors, we see the Son of Man fleshed out. We also see the Son of Man in authority and all of his glory. To us, it was a vision that three disciples saw, and it affected the revelation that came to us in the New Testament. But this was also a historically significant event for Israel. Israel as a people group, when Abraham was invited to leave his people from the Ur of the Chaldees, to leave his gods and goddesses, or to leave the, he used to worship the moon god, the crescent, he left all of that and set out in faith, believing God and looking for a city whose maker and builder is God. As he set out, you know the story, it continued to be a promise fulfilled over the ages. Finally, you get to the point where Moses is uh, on the scene. Moses leads the people out of Egypt to great deliverance out of the hand of Pharaoh, crosses the Red Sea, and is able to bring God's people into the 
promised land. Something happened in the desert where Moses struck the rock, whereas he should have spoken to the rock. And later on in Corinthians, we are given to understand that the rock is Christ. So you want to go study this. I'm not teaching it right here. But in doing so, he disobeyed. And by disobeying, he was hindered. He was stopped by God. He was denied the promised land. He was denied from entering the promised land. Joshua, who was the next generation, was going to lead the next generation. So an entire generation, because of disobedience, Moses' disobedience, and because of the grumbling and lack of faith, an entire generation is done away with. That's why 40 years was spent in the wilderness. And then, of course, Joshua, with the new generation, steps over and takes the promised land. And the rest of the book of Joshua basically is a blueprint for the breakup of the land for all the 12 tribes of Israel. But even when there is disobedience, which leads to delay in God's promises, God is still faithful to keep his promises. Because when God says something, he's going to make it happen. When God promises you something, he's going to make it happen. But here's the thing. God's promises expand and stretch over time. They are not limited by life and death. They're not limited by resources or by any number of improprieties from our part. When God says he wants to do something, he's going to make it happen. When Moses and Elijah came down and talked to Jesus, there was a powerful prophetic fulfillment. Elijah was coming in spirit and power. He had already come and Jesus said it was John the Baptist and John the Baptist had fulfilled that and he had been taken out of the picture. And Moses was coming down to touch that mountain and see God's promises fulfilled coming into the promised land. This may not be significant to you and me, but it is one of the angles at which you look at the transfiguration and see that God was fulfilling so many things in that one vision, in that one event. One angle is Peter, James, and John, as I said. Another angle is how God was fulfilling his promises to Moses in bringing him into the promised land. Another angle is Moses and Elijah, where Elijah represents the prophets and Moses represents the law. And as the cloud comes and covers them, they disappear. They disappear. As if to say, on this whiteboard of God's narrative, God was wiping the law out and wiping the prophets out and was presenting Christ and Christ alone. As Hebrews and John clearly present Jesus, this is God who in sundry times had spoken through the prophets, has now in these last days spoken through his son, the last and final and full revelation of God. And with the coming of Jesus and the declaring of his glory, and the show of his power through the resurrection, the kingdom of God had arrived. The kingdom of God had arrived. So the significance of that verse, the first verse of Mark chapter 9, which actually clubs with chapter 8. Of course, there are no chapters and verses in the original, but that is a transition. It's a vestibule between the two stories. He is about to take the three disciples and show them his glory. But before that, he says, some of you standing here are going to not die before you see the glory of God. This could very well be Christ in his glory through the transfiguration. This could very well be the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down in power. And this could also very well be that they would see the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And 
all of it points back to the fact that the kingdom of God is not a place. The kingdom of God is not a set of rules or a ideology. The kingdom of God is a person. It is a person, and within that person are the constituents of that kingdom of God. Within that person is are the are the citizens of the kingdom of God. So we are in Christ, and Christ rules. Christ is elevated back to His rightful glory as He gave His life for us and emptied Himself based on Philippians chapter one and two. So all of that may not have immediate bearing on your life, but it is interesting to know that in that one event there were so many different levels that we could experience the wiping out of you know the cloud coming and covering the two Elijah and Moses i find that particularly interesting because immediately as that happens i like the way that verse says and they again were alone with jesus they were alone with jesus you take everything out and you're alone with jesus you have everything you need you got everything you need so let me close by saying this. God fulfills his promises to Old Testament saints, to New Testament saints, and to future children, to future generations. He always keeps his promises, and sometimes his promises go past life and death and beyond, but he keeps his promises. Sometimes we always think of a promise in my generation, in my lifetime, within my framework, even within my deadlines. We always think of God fulfilling his promises to me, but God fulfills his promises to a people group, to Israel, to the church. And what he has said to the church will come about. It is reassuring to know that God is a promise-keeping God. As we look at this event, the transfiguration, it has little significance on our everyday lives. But if you were to stop and ask, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see you in all of your glory. We would essentially be asking Jesus to reveal who he really is and what he's really like right now. Because we're so attached to the Jesus who walked the earth instead of the Jesus who sits in heaven. And I think we should be thinking about that. We should be craving that glory. You tell me, right after that event, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, or Paul, for instance, you tell me, in their walk with Jesus, in their walk with God for the remainder of their life, which Jesus were they pursuing? What did they have in mind as they worshipped him, as they adored him, as they followed him, as they obeyed him? What was the vision in their head? Who was the Jesus they were praying to? And perhaps some of us need that vision. We need a vision of the glory of God and the Christ who not only is a God of glory, but a promise-fulfilling God. So now we've got the power of God revealed and we've got the promises of God more, made more sure for us. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians. It's chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Let me read that again for you. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Isn't that encouraging? We know that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And we have been given Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of every promise. Praise God for that. I just want to know, why do you think Jesus chose the three of them, Peter, James, and John? Were they his favorites? Like, I just want to know what you think. Yeah, that's a fun question. I think it's worth visiting that because one wonders why weren't all the 12 given that experience. I'm immediately reminded of 
that situation post resurrection when Jesus shows up in the home and all the disciples are there except Thomas and then the second time he shows up post resurrection and then Thomas is there and then you got that whole thing about Thomas not believing and then putting his finger into his side and and he says do not doubt only believe etc so you got these varied experiences that Jesus gave to all or some of the disciples now when you think about disciples these were the 12 who would later on become apostles however when you say the disciples followed Jesus there were close to 70 disciples that followed Jesus and many of them were women uh so you had a mix of men and women then you had a mix of apostles and everybody else and then among the apostles you had these three who were extremely dear to Christ not that Jesus loved anybody else less but that in the fellowship of Christ there was a companionship there was a sharing of his heart with a few he loved all his disciples they were all there for the cause of the gospel they were all there to follow him but sometimes god picks friends god had called moses and moses found himself on the top of the mountain with a cloud covering around them and the bible says god spoke to moses as a friend god found in david a heart a man after his own heart and god shared his heart with him the prophets of old some of the prophets not all of them some of the prophets god really connected and you could almost see god found companionship and god created companionship with certain people i would like to think that these three found themselves in the inner circle because of the way they pursued god and christ and loved his company i mean look how volatile all three were right james the lesser then you've got john the beloved he absolutely loved him he was the disciple that lay on the bosom of of christ and you've got your famous the last supper and you know john's right next to him and that story never gets old so and then you got him writing the gospel which is the love gospel all about the love of god penned beautifully from chapter 1 all the way to the end talking about how the love of god transforms us and john himself being someone who deeply loved jesus and then you got peter who i would most identify with him because he he was so volatile he was all over the place every story is told about peter he's the first one to talk up he's the first one to ditch he's the first one to walk away first one to betray first one to come back and then he's the first one to die and he gave his life at the end for jesus my favorite line in the gospel is when jesus says to peter when he's reinstating him he says peter when you return strengthen your brothers when you return strengthen your brothers so you have john who's like a flawless disciple never made a mistake can't even remember him ever saying anything wrong and then you got peter and you got peter who who said i'll die for you peter who rebukes jesus you think that i would have failed him i would have failed peter i'm like you you go stand at the back you go sit at the back peter i don't i don't want this nonsense but he's the one who stuck closest he's the one and i would like to literally draw from your question today the fact that the more you fight with god the more you engage the more you wrestle with god the closer you get to his promises take isaac for instance take jacob for instance isaac with the promises jacob whose name was turned to israel right and he wrestled with god i think god loves a good wrestle down so that he can prove himself rather than someone who wants to stand afar off and wait for god to prove himself 
to him. He never gets to say that. Peter, he just wrestled with Christ on every occasion. He took off in one direction. He denied Christ. He comes back to Jesus. He hears the cock crow. And, and later on, he becomes literally the leader of the Great Commission to Israel, the toughest lot, you know. And uh, I'm fascinated. I'm moved when I think about Peter because Peter and David, King David, these are two guys who really struggled. They struggled with, not with faith. They never struggled with faith, mind you. They always struggled with circumstances, with personality, with their own brokenness, their own weakness, yet a heart to stick close to Christ, close to God. And that, I think, is what uh, God rewards. Why Peter, James, and John? Well, that's what I see. I mean, look at them and look at Jesus and the kind of people he picks. I find great comfort in that because my struggles are not a sign of my lack of faith. It's actually a sign of my faith. And I'm working through that. Thank you for your perspective. And on that note, we'll close today's podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe. And we'll see you in the next podcast.